I, I guess in starting off this podcast, though, or this episode in particular, um, there, there's a there's a great quote that really feeds into what I saw when I opened up Skype this morning. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw that I had two missed calls from you. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm like, dude, if I didn't answer the first time, just give me a second. But it reminded me of this game on the Dreamcast. Mm-hmm. Sega Dreamcast. Uh, it was called Seaman. Um, and it was like this little aquatic simulator where you... Uh, take control of these creatures and they have these weird faces you just got to look it up to see for yourself but Mm. uh the leonard nimoy narrates it like as you go through the game Mm. and one of the quotes that i reminded that i was reminded of when i saw those uh those two phone those two missed calls was i like i was like it goes something like you visit often it seems as though some would say that you might be obsessed or perhaps it's because you have nothing better else to do. And I thought, well, I don't want to insult Ryan off the bat, (laughs) but it happens more times than it doesn't when it's like, I'm not online. Why are you calling me? (laughs) So this isn't a video game. Right. And, it, it what happens is like when you come to check on your like creature often uh leonard nimoy says this mm. so it's prompted by like continuously checking on this game but the thing about the thing about seaman is that you actually have to wait like real-time days for anything to happen wow it really stresses on the the ever-flowing continuation of life you know you can't pause the game life doesn't have a pause button uh mm-hmm. you can't reverse time even though there's an in-game clock uh they can die if they're not being fed or like or if their uh, terrarium isn't kept a certain temperature mm-hmm. but i just remembered that quote and i was like that fits <laughs> well i was gonna ask too because that 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 had to have been the the two times i tried calling last week just before we uh, and, and two times before that, and, uh, and the two times before that, right? <laughs> okay, that's that's. Uh, I'm I'm calling fake news on a few of those just because I'm seeing. Sorry. Okay, Sorry. you lose. There's at least in mid November. Okay, I'll give you that. Uh, oh, all right, they go go back farther. Oh, I remember well, there must have been one time where you must have called me five times and at first i thought okay he has like really something like this is something really important to say and i think we like oh geez yeah. i think there was like some drama like between like our, our mutual friend groups or whatever i don't know it was like he spilled the tea or however the fuck <laughs> they say it that was fun but no that i voice, just i thought voice you just <laughs> I'm, I'm sick and tired of that saying i'm sick and tired of a lot of sayings on the internet but, but here am i but here i am standing on my own soapbox saying that internet bad <laughs> that, <laughs> I, I guess in some ways befitting of, of one of the topics of this episode uh to the point of you know all, all these memes and quotes that keep uh resurfacing to the dumb question why me the cosmos barely bothers to return the reply why not uh, so I guess you could simply think of all these memes and think, well, 
they're ephemeral. They're here for a short while. Uh, or maybe not, you know. Uh, I mean, hell, there's they're, they're here. Commercials. They're here. These memes, they're here. They're queer, and I'm not used to them. So I guess I better get with the times, you know? Well, hey, I mean, there's Christmas commercials getting recycled, and I'm thinking to myself, this is cruel. You know, you you, ha- you have the the Hershey's Kiss Bell I like that commercial. one. Been on for the past what decade and a half, probably longer. Oh, longer, definitely. Yeah, longer than that. Yeah, that was. Well, they've revised it. They, they've they, they've it spruced it up yeah. a little bit to make it not look grainy, but mm-hmm. which again, if it looks grainy at all. And it's, you know, post-digital world. <laughs> That's not going to look good on everybody's HD TV unless they're going for grainy, which, you know, right. there's some people out there that are for that. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, welcome listeners to Mars on Life. I am, of course, Ryan Mancini. Joined with me, as always, is Sebastian Shug. And, uh, who? <laughs> yeah, who? <laughs> <laughs> Who's this guy? Who's this young and stirring up trouble? I just got off work. You got to forgive me. When you deal with, ah, man, I love my job. I really do. Compared to my last job, which I don't think I really delved into, Mm. um, let's just say in the most uh, in the most hindsighted way possible, this job is much better than the one that I had. And I guess it's because it goes by the definition of of it being a big boy job, finally. Mm. So, you know, one of those things. It's a good step up. And at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's about seeing where it takes you. And especially these days when nobody knows what the next second is going to entail, uh, arguably more so than, you know, ever before, then... You, you kind of, I guess, live more in the moment. I don't know. I guess, do, do you feel like you're living more in the moment, especially with the new job? Or is it, are you still mm-hmm. just, okay. No, see, I've always sort of lived for tomorrow. Um, whether mm. that be a security net or a, what is it? Safety net, security blanket. What, what's the, what's the terminology? I've, I've heard it. Like I've heard it either like way. Retirement or whatever. Um, it's not so much that I can't enjoy living in the now. It's just that uh, with how shitty the now is, what's really to enjoy outside my, you know, miscellaneous hobbies and, and, and other jobs, so to speak. Right. And I think, I don't know. I think when you're sort of put in a position where, you know, you actively spend time like on your own, like managing your finances or managing your time it's it's one thing it's one thing to look at what you have like in the 24 hours of time that you do have and say oh i'm gonna do this i'm gonna spend this much on this um i'm not even taking into account the holiday season here because my god can we say uh credits and debits whoo but oh yeah it's it's sort of two-pronged because you find yourself doing that. And when you get really caught up in doing that, you start to look at other people doing that as well. And and then you start to think to yourself, well, they're doing it such and such way that I wouldn't necessarily do, or I would necessarily do. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess for a bit of background, I mean, my, uh, you know, my career is finance. So it, it's, it's hard to look at someone with, it's hard to look at someone 
with my sardonic personality and be like, you know, it's kind of a dumb purchase. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of weird that they do that in the height of a pandemic, in the height of the greatest inflation since, you know, and and economic recession since since 13 years ago. Uh, You know, it's. It's mind boggling. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying this as someone who's in a financial advisement position because uh, disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, as everyone is held at gunpoint on the Internet to say. Mm. But, you know, you just kind of find yourself questioning what others pay for and like how it brings them joy and and, and I guess fulfillment. I know exactly what you're going to say when I say this. It's very contrarian of me to say so, because. Yes, it, it's interesting to sort of think the opposite of what everyone else thinks. Mm-hmm. But in the long run, I feel like it provides me with more groundwork of what not to do and how not to act. Yeah. When I, you know, knock on wood, turn 30 and beyond. Mm-hmm. I guess when I'm categorized as like a real adult. Uh, do, doing some uh, reading, have we? Mm, well... <laughs> You did buy. You did give gift me a book, so I think it was only customary. Either that, or I take the four, the Fahrenheit four fifty one route and just throw it in my fireplace. Aww. But <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. You know what? How about you lay the foundation, and I will answer your questions as they come, because I'm sure you have loads. And I'm not finished with it, obviously. But um... okay, okay. Um, well, I guess to, to kind of start off, especially when, when people are wondering, and it shouldn't be any surprise given, number one, uh, if people don't already know this, we record every Wednesday, episodes drop two days later, so if there's breaking news, oh well, um, that's, that's something we follow up on the next week. Uh, there's that, uh, there's that frontline journalism. Anyway. I guess you can't, uh, you can't, you can't win them all. No, you you can't. You can't. I mean, I'll put it this way. In the very beginning, like I was very gung ho about recording, getting home to edit and then having it out the next morning. But as the pandemic went on and not only just coping with the pandemic, but also just other things on my plate personally, but also trying to manage certain projects and various gigs that I've had in the last couple of years it just didn't become as easy to do. Whereas I think I'm in a position now, which it's ironic. I say that I say this and here we are almost at the end of the season. And uh, it it seems way more manageable to just record edit the night of, and theoretically have it out the next day. Uh, You never know. Things could change. But anyway, um, back to my original point. Uh, this week also marks the 10-year anniversary of the death of journalist and, uh, you know, call him whatever you want, iconoclast, public intellectual, neoconservative, whatever floats your boat. Uh, he was certainly an author and an essayist, but uh, Chris Richens passed away 10 years ago today, and uh, he died from complications with esophageal cancer uh, due to pneumonia. And See, uh, now, now, now this is where I would chime in yes. and be like, smoking kills. Now, I'm not going to be that guy being like, oh, oh you know, uh, 
he fucking deserved to die because he smoked cigarettes. No, but it's one of those things where I'm just like, my mind was like when I when I found out how he died, and I don't mean to interrupt. It's just a matter of like, and people still smoke. Yeah. And did he smoke when he had when he was diagnosed? No. I guess no, it, he I didn't. Guess it wouldn't matter. Oh, okay. Well, I guess. I mean, he end. he quit on and off. Uh, oh God. I mean, I I'll put it this way. I know you know he was born in. 1949 so when he passed away he was about uh 62 i believe mm-hmm. and uh so that meant a good chunk of his life he was smoking and smoking like a chimney um i know that he w- was kind of on and off after the start of the new millennium but i also vividly remember that he had an article in the 90s which i believe is in uh his essay collections called for the sake of argument where he talks about basically defending smoking and drinking among teenagers. This was a man who covered everything from Mother Teresa's relationship with dictators to the war crimes of Henry Kissinger to Harry Potter to God to the girl with the dragon tattoo to George Orwell. Literally name a topic and he more than likely referred to it or wrote about it. Um, Interesting. Like he, he covered so much that like I, I was thinking about it this afternoon because i finished um I, today this morning i finished the most recent collection of articles that was actually just published last month um that he wrote for the london review of books called hitch in time and it really just kind of blew me away how and this is present in all of his essay collections but it's also present in just all of his books in general which you know for people out there that want to know, he, he had his name attached to roughly, and I'm, I'm this is a rough estimate because he wrote introductions to several books. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to put it at around 40. It's probably way higher than that. Uh, I know my collection only is just shy of 30. Um, but, you know, he, he wrote about just about any topic you can think of and yeah, again, he, he was on and off with smoking uh, the last 11 years of his life. It was in the summer of 2010, uh, he was promoting his memoir, Hitch 22, which is, I, I think when you and I first met and you had asked me what my favorite book was, I know at that time it was Hitch 22, and it still holds up as a terrific memoir. I don't know yet if I would continue to say it's my favorite book of all time it probably still is um just because it's so rich in detail and also just like it's not your average memoir and yet you read it and you're thinking this guy lived such a weird wild long life and you know he died at 62 like he he makes it feel like a long life (laughs) um but uh you know he was promoting the book he went on the daily show uh and then later had a Q&A with his old buddy, the author, Salman Rushdie, who I've talked about on the show. And that was the day he was diagnosed. And he somehow toughed it through the Daily Show and the Q&A. And then for the next almost 20 months, he was, you know, living through Tumorville, as he would call it. Uh, yeah, he well, he, he also wanted to face the prospect of dying. And, you know, th- this was a guy who, again, he, he 
attacked sacred cows like the aforementioned Mother Teresa, which uh, the book on her, you, you want to know what the title is for that one? I have a feeling you're going to tell me anyway. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> the Missionary Position. And it, it's a great it's a great read. It, it, you know, it was his first kind of critical work going after a public figure, um, followed by his great missive on Bill Clinton called No One Left to Lie To, which arguably applies to just about every post-war, post-World War II president. <laughs> um, literally every post-World War II president, now that I think about it. Um, and then, of course, his book on Henry Kissinger. And, of course, then he talked about his beef with religion, with the whole concept of organized faith, um, which was my introduction to him. But he also talked about people that he admired, like Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, George Orwell. And then at the end, he wrote about dying. And I unfortunately didn't get a chance. It's a short read. It's called Mortality. Um, I didn't get a chance to read it today due to uh, circumstances beyond my control to somewhat quote uh, the great journalist Hunter S. Thompson, who Hitchens in a lot of ways was compared to, even though they were radically different, radically different people. Um, both loved their cigs and drinks, I will say. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to name the name of the article just because I, I don't want to get slapped with being called discriminatory. But let's just say he uses a very English term to refer to cigarettes um, in his article. Oh. Yeah, uh, so I, I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to go so far as say it, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, he leaves a huge left behind a huge body of work. Um, I could go on and on and on about all the different stories he wrote about, but there was one in particular. And I guess actually before I even get to this main subject, because uh, it somewhat kind of dovetails a little bit into a discussion you and I had this past weekend where, and I, I suppose any listeners that follow me on Instagram probably know, uh, Sebastian and I went to the Museum of Contemporary Arts extension building, uh, the the Geffen Contemporary, um, where they had on exhibit, and I'm going to try and get it right, I have the flyer with the smushed face on it in front of me, uh, <laughs> Hippolyte Wrist. Yes. Big heartedness. Be my neighbor was the name. And, um, you know, we went and saw that it was a lot of very immersive modern art, which, frankly. I feel like that's and this is just kind of a brief digression, because I figure it deserves mentioning the fact that you and I did this. And I, I should note, too, and I wanted to save this for when we were on air and not just send it in a text, but I'm I'm. Very grateful for you for having the the afternoon free. I won't go into details, listeners, but I had kind of a personal thing come up and Sebastian was available to join me on this little adventure. So I just want to thank you once again for being not only the best co-host, but the best uh, compatriot on an adventure like this. So thank you so much again, Sebastian, buddy. Um, well, you know, it was a coin toss. 50% of me was just going to be like, yeah, just, you know, be a man, suck it up. No, <laughs> no, honestly. And uh, of course, you know, I'm, I'm always here for you, uh, especially when it comes down to a, a day where we're just sort of chumming it in Los Angeles, which 
already just mm, you already know how I feel about that. Just being in LA, you know, it, yeah. And we saw Miss Wrist. <laughs> no W. Just so yeah, listeners are like, wait. R I S T. Yeah. Um, you know, after being to many, many different museums with you, I think the first one that we went to was uh, the Broad together. This one was definitely more zany, more out there. Um, I, I'm trying to do my best to sort of put it all into pieces. I, I think for a brief moment, it, it sort of reminded me of like, like a Bjork music video, but like yeah. more on psilocybin, more on acid. Uh, mm. it, it, it was contemporary. I'll tell you that much. Definitely. Well, and I was, I was. Yeah, I, I was a broken record about it. It it reminded me a great deal of literally anything by David Lynch. There was moments where I was thinking, this is just like Twin Peaks. This is just like Mulholland Drive. This is just like uh, Eraserhead. Um, I think Eraserhead takes a bit more liberty. <laughs> oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. God. I was going to say, like, I, don't, I don't think. But even there, there was because there was one hallway we walked through where there was music playing and it was reminiscent of the song that the radiator girl in Eraserhead sings about um and I'm gonna probably bush but yeah butcher it but um it was it's like the heaven song or the, the I know that the lyric is you know in heaven everything is fine and mm-hmm. so which the song in of itself is sort of a, a suggested to be an allusion to suicide so in that sense, just audibly, it sounded similar to that song. But whatever music we heard at one point, it was just it was that creeping feeling of like, oh, we've really entered like a David Lynchian world, which to some degree is kind of cool. But to some degree is also kind of mortifying just because, again, listeners, I've talked about this before. What's behind the diner in Mulholland Drive? It took me by surprise. Um <laughs> It really took me by surprise. Uh, but, um, but anyway, you know, we, yeah, we, we checked this out. We, I personally, I had a great time checking it out just because it was very, I'll put it this way. It was a lot more broad than it was Mocha, in my opinion. Like it, it, it felt, with what I've seen before at Mocha, it's very off the wall but it feels less like, you know, and this is going to be a really, it, it's it's my take. Uh, it, it's, it feels less like art and more like trying to be art. Whereas at the Broad, I don't know, it, it, there's something about it that feels more like either art or pop art. Plus there's stuff there that, you know, there's stuff there that's contemporary art, but it's by people that are, well-known and famous like Keith Haring or Jean-Michel Basquiat. Whereas with something like this, it had that immersive quality, which arguably I feel like at this point, that's the direction art can go. Right. But because comparative, but only because comparatively, you know, to like the Broad, I'm not saying that she's a small artist by any means, but yeah, because it was like such a small exhibit 
comparative to something like the Broad, it's it sort of you said that it sort of like felt like it was trying to be art as opposed to it just being art. I know we're gonna get a lot of fucking flack <laughs> for that. Well, I'll put it this way: with with Mocha, because it yeah. felt like it's trying to be with Broad and with Geffen Contemporary, it felt more like what I don't know. I guess the, the easiest way I could think of it is it felt more like what modern art can be and i know this is a complete digression from the hitchens thing i'm getting back to that regard like the whole like subjectivity of of, of art being art mm. argument is i could just already feel it bleeding out of the woodwork here and oh yeah i happen to have a different approach to that simply because of uh, you know both personal reasons as well as what i've experienced in regards to just general artistic discussions yeah. where you know, if art is supposed to make you feel something great, I guess I'm just not feeling what everyone else is. You know, yeah. maybe, maybe it's me or maybe it's the art. I don't know. Uh, I, I'd like to believe that, you know, the latter is correct. If not to just quench my my ego, which mm -hmm. I don't have, by the way. But <laughs> it's one of those things where it's just like, you know. You don't walk in. It's not proper etiquette to say or to walk into a museum or an art exhibit and say this art is bad by objective definition right because you can't say subjective definition because it's not a definition at that point it's an opinion mm -hmm. it's sort of taboo uh to walk into sort of into any exhibit and to say you know that's that's bad objectively and i think my point and i think my quarrel with that is is the question of it being well well, why not? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, like, why not? And it's not it's not for the sake of just being emblematic of contrarianism. It's the fact that, well, it just doesn't. Appeal to me, it doesn't mm -hmm. the general message doesn't appeal to me, whatever that message is trying to be in the eyes of one versus the other. Mm -hmm. um, the composition. It, it may be ugly. Or it may just be something that, I don't know, I, I don't see the hidden meaning in. I get it. Not art, you know, not all pieces of art are going to be made for myself or anyone who happens to look at them. I agree that there has to be a certain amount of external perspective looking at pieces of art in order to understand both the context and subtext of it all. But at the same time, I'm just, I'm thinking to myself, it's like, you know, you go into a museum and you don't enjoy what you're looking at. Are you getting your money's worth out of it? Number one. And are you really taking away anything from it? Number two. Mm. Right. Well, and I think to that very point, uh, you know, it, it kind of ties in with, uh, what's what's called untitled parentheses questions by barbara kruger which is the big mural outside um which we got i got yes. wonderful pictures of you with so that, why don't, by the way why don't, why don't we actually go ahead and read that yeah absolutely i have it so right I, in I front of say, me actually i have it um but if you want to read it feel free oh i think my pictures got cut off so go ahead and read it okay um yeah. so it, it to kind of give context, since it's a visual thing and this is a podcast, um, uh, Mocha at the Geffen Contemporary, which is in the corner, this whole thing is meant to resemble a U.S. flag. So where it says Mocha Geffen Contemporary, that's in the blue star portion. 
and the actual questions that are emblematic of the title would make up the stripes, uh, the white stripes of an American flag, where it says, who is beyond the law? Who is bought and sold? Who is free to choose? Who does the time? Who follows orders? Who salutes longest? Who prays loudest? Who dies first? Who laughs last? And mind you, this was done. Oh, this is hilarious. Oh, that's interesting. This was supposed to be up until November 2020. Here we are, December 2021, <laughs> and we saw it. Um, <laughs> interesting. Oof. But that's um, th- this, the process for this was begun in 1990 and completed in 2018. And I'll, I'll just very quickly say that I think while the reasoning behind it, especially when it was completed, you know, one could argue it's very emblematic of and also very pedantic in a way in regards to sort of just people that respond to what they believe their country ought to be and what their country really is. It's easy to see this within the realm of being like, well, it's supposed to be a slap in the face of the administration of the previous president. However, two things. Number one, there's nothing more striking than something that resembles the American flag, yet isn't. And number two, Los Angeles over the last, I'd say, three going on four years has become way more empathetic to murals. Or at least the idea of including mural art as a part of the framework of at least downtown. Maybe not so much. If you go outside of that, it's very hit and miss. Um, But it feels very appropriate just because it's the kind of pop art that you would see on the side of a building right near, you know, Union Station and parts of East L.A. What what was kind of your your approach to it? It was big. <laughs> uh, and the pictures were nice. And I, I no, actually, I take that back. Um, because it's one thing for me to just sort of be like, it's good because anecdotally I say so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I remember reading it out loud in the parking yes. lot. Uh, and I think we answered each question si- like simultaneously. It was like, or no, I answered it. It was like, who is beyond the law? Me. Who is bought and sold? Me. Who is free to choose? Well, me. Who does the time? Me. Who follows orders? Who salutes the law? Like, it was all like me, 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 me. And it was it was supposed to be like a joke, right? And then I realized, I'm like, this is just teeming with like ob- like objective sort of truths. And I think I said like, man, did, did fucking Ayn Rand write this? Yeah, I remember you saying that. <laughs> And yeah. I'm just like, this is like an like an Ayn Rand wet dream here. Libertarians squeal at the sight <laughs> of You know, we, we kind of drove around the city for a little bit until we went to Angel City Brewery, where uh, while I did think to myself, boy, this is a great place to kind of thread through conversations for the season finale, uh, suffice it to say, the... Uh, the the jams, if you will, the tunes, uh, didn't really make that so easy. So therefore, we were left with basically screaming at each other, kind of like you and Bremer and Johnny Lee Miller in Train Spotting mm-hmm. uh, when they're at the Iggy Pop thing, and there's the subtitles because their Scottish accents are so thick, but Iggy Pop is so loud that it's like 
what are we saying? Um, <laughs> and so, and then I proceeded to give you a gift. It was Letters to a Young Contrarian by uh, Christopher Eric Hitchens. And uh, yeah, you know, we, we talked a little bit about sort of the contents of the book, how it's the closest he ever got to a personal manifesto. And I do want to get to what you had said to me about, you know, thinking a little bit more about diving back into uh, publishing. But there was a subject that I'm going to actually was wondering when I was going to send this your way, but I'm sending you an article that talks about both Hitchens and publishing that actually came mm. out this very year. And it came out several months ago, back in February. And uh, it's a New York Times article with the headline of Hitchens biography proceeds against his widow's wishes. And then the sort of subtitle reads, Carol Blue Hitchens and her late husband's literary agent are discouraging friends from participating in a book tentatively titled Pamphleteer, The Life and Times of Christopher Hitchens. And I've read the article several times, so I'm not going to kind of do a read by read, paragraph by paragraph retelling. Mm -hmm. um, the, the short, long and short of it is there's a British journalist who is working on a biography that's due out sometime next year, and he's writing it for W.W. Norton, which is a big publisher in the United States, and Hitchens's widow, Carol Blue, is against the book and basically saying that, you know, we're aware of a self-appointed would-be biographer, one Stephen Phillips, which is the name of the author, uh, is embarked on a book on Christopher. We read his proposal and are dismayed by the coarse and reductive approach. We have no confidence in this attempt at the man in full. We are not cooperating, and we urge you to refuse all entreaties by Mr. Phillips or his publisher, W.W. W. Norton. Unsurprisingly, his brother, Christopher's brother, Peter, uh, who we've talked about both at length, but also uh, referred to, if you will, in our one of our bonus episodes regarding Peter and his Twitter spat with uh, Paul Joseph Watson. Uh, classic, <laughs> just classic. I, I just keep thinking back to that. I'm just like, oh, this is mm, chef's kiss. But uh, Peter is all in favor of it just because he, he essentially figures that if there was anybody to have a biography out by now, it would be his brother because like he, he understands his brother's legacy. Yeah. It's his brother, but he also does understand that like, yeah, he meant means that much to people online. And I've gotten a ton of flack over the last 10 years since his passing. Clearly he deserves a biography. It's something that people that are fans of his are going to gobble up. And admittedly, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'm also looking forward to there's actually a book coming out early next month. Well, OK, technically the last day of the year, but it'll be out uh, like first week of January, technically by Ben Burgess, who's a great podcaster and YouTuber who uh, has his own kind of pseudo philosophical slash political take on what Hitchens got right and where he went wrong and why he matters, which is actually the subtitle of the book. Um, but uh, <laughs> essentially the whole article talks about how 
and it's been exp- expanded upon elsewhere, like in the nation and blogs online about the whole concept of unauthorized biographies and how at the end of the day, that's what this book will be if it doesn't have the sanction of or it doesn't have the support of the family. Therefore, you know, without anything that direct minus family members, you know, that aren't part of this guy's direct family, like his wife and kids. Um, and potentially, I don't know, but potentially without any help from friends of his, like Salman Rushdie, Martin Amos, Ian McEwen, all various authors that he was dear friends with throughout his life. Um, you know, I, I guess, what do you think about sort of this? And in a lot of ways, it's kind of a new frontier in biographies now of publishers going out of their way to have a biography that isn't approved by the family of the subject, but they still want to go ahead with it anyway. And I know this was done with the recent biography about Nipsey Hussle, which is also a really good read. So Um, the family did not approve it. Hitchens is dead and people are trying to publish and someone is trying to publish his biography on his behalf. Not so much on his behalf, but this was something that he wanted publish published if he was hypothetically alive. To my knowledge, the public, Stephen Phillips and Hitchens, at least to my knowledge, didn't know each other. So Hitchens never approved anybody because that's just it. He he wrote his memoir thinking, okay, my next book is going to be a complete rewrite of the Ten Commandments. I'm not kidding. Um, And then he was diagnosed with cancer and then he passed away. So. He never, so, unlike other authors so, like Philip Roth, he never inaugurated a biographer to write about him. I'm just trying to sort of understand, is this sort of like like Francisco Goya? Hey, I don't want people ever seeing this painting of Saturn devouring his son mm-hmm. type of scenario. Like, like, I don't want anyone ever reading this manifesto. Because it's one thing to find a dead a dead author's works and think to yourself well you know he's famous or he was rather you know it's it's a household name uh let's publish this book because it was like his dying wish so to speak right but it's another if it's basically made for profit and at the end of the day he's not profiting from it it's it's his his uh his uh his wife correct well, it, I, I think with regards to this biography, I don't think anyone in his direct family would have any kind of either involvement nor profit. Okay. Um, but it leaves the question of like, well, if the direct family is reaching out to people they know saying don't cooperate, you know, obviously, I mean, there's enough information about the guy out there from his own writing, as well as if his brother Peter is willing to speak, which Mm-hmm. By all accounts, uh, well, the article even says that Peter Hitchens said that he has spoken with Phillips for the project. He said that he received an email from Wasserman, uh, and I believe Wasserman was the literary agent. I could be wrong. Uh, it's a long article, but um, about it, but saw no harm in cooperating. So, you know, to kind of use a different example, there was another author's biography that I believe came out just this last year, if not in 2020, about Philip Roth, who's another famous author of the 20th century. 
And he, I think he passed away, it was in 2018, but he had already had somebody selected to be his biographer and sit down with him, do interviews, talk. And then years later, the book comes out after Philip Roth had died. But then there was also all the scandal behind it because allegedly the author of the book uh, basically committed a a sexual assault. And the, the sort of twisting of the knife is the fact that a lot of the subject matter in Philip Roth's books incorporate sex and allegations, allegations of misogyny. And, you know, in a lot of ways, there's something very Philip Rothian about how his biography was written with Hitchens. Again, as far as we know, he never had this planned. It was just somebody who basically felt the time is right for a biography. And frankly, I know that the book was originally, uh, he originally was able to sell the prompt for the book in 2020 to W.W. Norton, the publisher. Something tells me maybe he was hoping for a book that would come out to coincide with the 10th anniversary of his passing, of Hitchens' passing. But circumstances being what they are and working with, well, lack thereof working with the family, not working with the family, um, made me think, well, maybe that's why it's being pushed back to 2022. Uh, so, but that that's kind of the situation that it's in now. If that makes sense. I, I, right. I, I don't really know how to answer that. You know, I, I feel like if it was expressed consensually to, to publish this work, then that would mm-hmm. be one thing. But because it's sort of a uh, um, sort of like seems like a last ditch effort mm-hmm. uh, to, I don't know, popularize whatever his last words may have been. And you also got to keep in mind, what was his last published book? His last published book that at least he was aware of was Mortality, which came out in 2012. And that was his first uh, posthumous belief. How how prescient. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I think my I think sort of my my logic here is the fact that if you if you end up publishing this book from beyond the grave, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That is the last you will ever hear of of Christopher Hitchens, and whether right. or not that book ends up being the best or worst thing that comes out of out of his mouth, I think I prefer not knowing. Mm. Um, I would rather keep it ambiguous. If if mortality is as good of a note as you say it is, or as as appropriate of a note as as, as it was to go off on. Mm-hmm. then you know, why risk it, so to speak? Because there have been, you know, I, I mentioned uh, Hitch and Time, which came out last month. There there have been at least, including that and Mortality, there have been at least five asterisk, five books since his passing. I'll put it this way, with Mortality, he was foreseeing not only a much more longer book but also a much more happier conclusion and, and this is this isn't me speculating this is straight from the horse's mouth you know it, it's what he and his wife wanted 
unfortunately things didn't turn out the way they did and so therefore it was his last book technically but i think in a lot of ways what 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 it makes me wonder is just simply like okay he did kind of become a bit of a pop culture adjacent icon uh and he did write a longer autobiography hitch 22 which again goes very in depth on his life and there's been other retellings of his life too out there from this really good book by daniel oppenheimer called exit right which talks about thinkers and politicians the last century that were on the left and then switched to the right one of them was ronald reagan Hitchens was another subject in that book. Um, the New York Times article also points out that Phillips's project will not be the first book written about Hitchens since his death. In 2016, Larry Alex Taunton, an evangelical writer, published The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, The Restless Soul of the World's Most Notorious Atheist, in which he wrote that Hitchens was open to believing in Christianity a claim he based primarily on conversations he had with Hitchens during two long car trips, which, and this is now me speaking, everybody has read into that and thought, yeah, that doesn't sound like the guy we know. And it seems it seems typical that a evangelical preacher would say, oh, yeah, Hitchens said he was fine with converting at the last second. And everybody that knew him was like, bullshit. Um. Mm-hmm. And and I, mind you, I've tried reading Taunton's book on him, and it's, you know, it, it's one thing where, you know, I'm not a fan of some of the figures that Hitchens kind of colluded with in his last decade. Like, uh, you know, he, he messed around with astro uh, astrophysicists that had kind of very sketchy stories come out about them post Me Too. Uh he was pals with uh, Sam Harris, who in recent years has kind of swam in the Ben Shapiro slash Dave Rubin waters. Um, a lot of people keep wondering whether or not Hitchens was aware of Jordan Peterson. As far as I know, they had they knew nothing of each other. People actually compare the two of them, which I find hilarious <laughs> because Peterson, you know, as much as Hitchens was was very in love with with science he was approaching it from a very outside perspective and also was not looking at basic things like, you know, the dynamics of gender in the same kind of way that Peterson does. And he was also looking at it in a way that I think could be a little bit more understandable and certainly not stupid the way Peterson does, in my opinion. It's curious just because I'm wondering, okay, so what can this guy talk about that hasn't been shared with already? I think that's kind of where I approach this whole biography subject again we know so much there's a whole there's a whole thing out there that hitchens would talk about called youtube or as he would call it me tube uh <laughs> the reason why he would call it that is because he'd be like wow i don't remember all these videos of me and yet here i am you know uh right so but you know which is fair like so in that sense you get a good understanding of the guy and his views and what he had to say about other sacred cows like Bill Clinton, Princess Diana, George Bush, Mel Gibson, if you will, God, you know, literally anybody. And Barack Obama, when it comes to the whole standpoint of an unauthorized biography, there's enough people out there that go out of their way and write this stuff 
and it still gets published. And it's about people where they've already let a bunch of their, you know, personal lives be out there. I remember being at Barnes and Noble not that long ago, and there was some unauthorized biography about Brian Cranston. And I'm thinking to myself, number one, and this is no offense to the whoever it was that wrote it, who needs this when there's a Wikipedia article? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, but also like. I don't know, to some degree, when you don't have a big publisher behind an unauthorized biography, it makes it feel cheap, I think. Whereas if it's something else like the aforementioned uh, The Marathon Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle, which had a lot of clout behind it, it had a reputable journalist who had interviewed and met with Nipsey during his life, then it gave it a little bit more life and it gave it more of a feeling of this is a guy who knows the subject well enough that he interviewed him already. And this was, you know, at this point, I mean, you know, Nipsey Hussle had already been dead several years. So therefore, like with Hitchens, it wasn't like Nipsey Hussle was like, yeah, I want you to write a biography about me. It was more like he died suddenly. This is a man who's got enough of a life worth telling in book form and so therefore let's publish it but the family didn't cooperate and what i mean and you know that might be a harsh way of putting it the family didn't want to basically be involved with something that's still sensitive and i guess in hitchens in hitchens's case it's still a sensitive subject i I can't say um i mean from a publishing standpoint like like i guess thinking like a publisher and, and being a publisher yourself i guess what's I don't know if you have anything more to add to it or any two cents to it that you'd want to note. Well, as a publisher, or should I say as an ex-publisher, it's it's tempting to want to continually publish material because it's a matter of establishing not only recognition, but your ability to essentially do your job Mm -hmm. to, to make sure that the people who are supposed to see this product are seeing it. And in regards to compensation, if it happens to be a a book author or uh, if it happens to be something like a newspaper, that there is a certain reader base that is actively subscribing to the content. Right. You know, I think that there is sort of a little bit of uh, not so much egotism, but there is sort of the scramble at being towards the top. And while I sort of stayed in the more independent side and and assisted those who wanted to simply publish books back then. Um, you know, I don't think I would have ever. I think I more so played it safe in regards to like, uh, like outreach, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I I'd like to believe that I didn't step on people's toes, or at least I, if I. <laughs> You know, I, I never really I felt myself as a publisher not really taking any risks way back when. I think it was just because it was how young I was. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's 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 comparing apples to oranges, really, because I, I have my perspective of of it through through books. But. You know how often those books were read and sold. I mean, it's a different thing entirely. And that's and that popularity equates to to those metrics, you know. Right. Um, 
I'd like to, you know, I, I believe that I, <laughs> I know rather that I'm not in the same field as, you know, the publisher that ultimately does Hitchens material, I, you know, absolutely not, but mm-hmm. I'm thankful enough to have learned the trade and to know that it hasn't really worked for me in the traditional mm-hmm. sense. Um, and I think, you know, I, I cherish my time having spent as such. I don't really know how to continue. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I, I I also bring that bring up this whole subject too because it it well, I was gonna bring it up even before we we uh, met up over the weekend, but I know it was something that you and I had talked about again, and it was something that you you thought a lot about after I had given you uh, letters to a young contrarian about. Di- potentially diving back into publishing if, if that's something we can talk about or yeah I, I mean honestly I don't plan on spending more than five minutes discussing it because it, it, it's yeah. one of those ideas where simply put sounds nice uh very familiar do I have the time to do it at this particular moment in time absolutely not right. um and to the fact of the matter is is that having done the math having looked over the books and having faced myself in the mirror and understanding what works and what doesn't the past seven years spent publishing yielded far less than what my expectations of it were Mm. okay and something comparative like youtube yielded far more in a shorter amount of in one seventh of the time frame Mm. and have provided me with this you know this small but you know yet growing community that I wouldn't trade for the world. So it's one of those things where it's just like, okay, maybe the thing that I thought that I really wanted to do for the rest of my life, maybe that doesn't have to work and that's okay. You know, it's fun to look back at the past, but it's always it's always practical to, to see what didn't work and to know right. how to improve it. You know, um, if there's anything that I put out nowadays, it would be through other means of publishing. It would be through video production. It would be through uh, music or illustration. It would oh, primarily illustration through, you know, with my position as a cartoonist. But it's one of those things where it's just like, you know, it, it doesn't have to confine to the barriers that I set when I was 15. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's important. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, you know, maybe one day, uh, (laughs) again, I really don't know what to say other than, uh, hopefully I I hope to one day see a work of yours be published. I feel like Mm. every journalist should have something out there, you know, cover to cover that they can bring to people and read, even if Mm. it is something as, as personal as a manifesto, or it could be something analytical, you know, similar to what an essayist would do. Yeah. But I'm just spitballing here. With some authors, like their very first book can be, well, I guess more specifically journalists, it could be anything from, um, you know, I know Mark Leibovich, who writes with New York Times Magazine, his first proper book, I guess you could say, was sort of about the ugly Hollywoodness of Washington, D.C., circa 2012, 2013. Um, That's certainly a lot more inside baseball than most people's first books. But hell, you know, it it could be something as simple as like what 
I guess I guess that you could say it was his first proper book. It wasn't the first time he had his name published in book form, but I know uh, Hitchens' first book was about Cyprus, which, as I've mentioned to you before, was sort of like he was very, very much an internationalist, and Cyprus was a subject that he focused very closely on to the point where, you know, he fell in love with the country, He his first wife was from Cyprus, so, you know, it became something very personal to him. In that respect, that doesn't mean my first book is going to be about Brazil, but, um, you know, it's it's a possibility. Um, not not to put you on the spot, but I, I'm, I'm just tantalized and curious what you think of Letters to a Young Contrarian so far. Unless you're like a couple pages so far, in, in which case that's so okay. Far I can, so far I can see why you, you gifted it to me. Um, and if anything... If this is a if this is an official declaration on air, it would be something that, you know, in regards to my personality, you know, being sardonic and sarcastic while at the same time being analytical and and humorous, at least I like to think so. um, Mm. It's something that I want to double down on Mm. because why am I going to let anyone else tell me how to live my life or how to react (laughs) to certain circumstances or, you know, God forbid, handle discrepancies in my life aside from how i'm used to to living mm-hmm. you know hitchens essentially says that this is okay and that it's a reaction you know it's a it's an, a natural reaction that that many people ultimately don't have they don't take this analytical stance when trying to look at the world around them and think well how do i also make this humorous in a way that doesn't have to relate to the outside world you don't have mm-hmm. to you know people around you don't have to get it but to the people that do get it that's great and at the end of the day that's what matters the most you know i, I think from what i've read so far you know hitchens isn't about some hitchens isn't about establishing that communal mindset so much as it is find who understands and 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 take them with you yeah so in that regard <laughs> just be unapologetically based from now on. <laughs> well, and it's, it's you know, it's, I'm, it's been great so far, really. And I think I think it when I opened the packaging, you know, and I gave you a hug and I was just like, "Thank you. It's me." Because it is. In in for all intents and purposes is i'm not here standing on a soapbox saying oh i'm a contrarian i'm better than you no Mm. it's more so along the lines of wow there's someone else out there who 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 understands like the nuances of of comedy and and satire and he's dead (laughs) (laughs) you know he lived his entire life through this journalistic stance and you know it's not to say that people don't act like this yeah we live on a planet with upon with billions upon billions of people. Of course, you're going to find people who, who who talk like this, who act like this. You know, aside from you and a choice few other individuals, I haven't met them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's one of those things where this works. It's worked for someone, and whether or not my life turns out exactly the way his has, which it hasn't, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find solace in knowing that 
those adaptations and those life experiences, they can lead into what Hitchens tells me or what Hitchens is advocating for. And, and um, I was going to say perspectivizing, but that's, that's not a word, uh, his perspective. Yeah. Uh, and I think too, like, you know, I, I think I mentioned this to you as well, that what, what I've always kind of consoled with this book is that not only not only is it something that is just meant to be for every uh, edgelord out there who thinks they can debate, you know, everybody from anybody from Joel Osteen to Dinesh D'Souza about religion and look like the bigger man with their shirt unbuttoned. But uh, if anything, it, it at least to my mind, outside of the fact that this was around the time that, you know, he started going down what a lot of people consider the dark path of sounding a little bit more like a neocon being in favor of the war on terror and then subsequently advocating for the war in Iraq. He still had a lot of good thinking that I think was just very, you know, and it sounds very boomer of him and I, you know, it's something he said himself, but like, in a lot of ways, this is the kinds of stuff that he learned about being our age and living through the 60s and 70s the way they were, especially in London, in the UK. Um, but then also getting to witness the world around him in the 80s and especially the 90s up until that point and realizing that at the end of the day, the kinds of lessons that, you know, that he learned as a young man of the left can easily a lot of those lessons can easily apply can easily apply ugh, to literally anybody else you know even if there's somebody that's religious maybe not fundamentally religious because he does touch upon he, he does give one of his earlier critiques on religion um that in a lot of ways kind of plants the seeds for god is not great but he also you know it, it's just lessons that I think are just good to have, even if you're working in a, in a field where, you know, like journalism, where if you need to maintain levels of objectivity, sometimes there are life lessons that can carry you forward that you're not going to get from any elements of style or, you know, whatever you learn in a typical journalism class, especially if you're somebody that advocates for, Searching for the truth and standing up to dictatorships and, you know, all, all the typical things you hear about journalism. He could become pedantic about those things, but at the same time, like, at the same time, he knew people that were actually suffering from a lack of those liberties. And so he could turn that around into making it sound like something that could apply to virtually anybody even if it like I know one one famous topic that he talks about is, you know, never be afraid to repeat yourself. You know, obviously know your limits and don't try and become a bore. But. You know, if you're continuously being shot down for saying, oh, you know, oh, Hitchens, why would you go after Mother Teresa? She helps the poor. It doesn't hurt to repeatedly note the fact that she looked at poverty as a gift from God. Uh, and as a way to, you know, a way for people to look up at God in a happy light. Somebody who thought, you know, AIDS may be bad, but condoms are worse. And somebody who didn't advocate for 
women's liberation. You know, he, he was pointing all this stuff out in the face of people that were like either pretending to be liberal or pretending to be feminist. And he would be like, hey, wait a minute. Uh, bullshit. You know, and he would go everywhere about it, whether it was on radio, uh, on TV. I mean, he was on every cable channel. And of course, you know, the whole last however many, I guess you could say, really, if anything, the last 10 years of his life, the focus of religion, like he was repetitive. You know, there, there are so many times I can hear the phrase celestial North Korea. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, yeah, I know who said that. I know where that comes from. You know, especially if I hear it from somebody else, because I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I know who said that a thousand times in debates and interviews and God knows how many TV appearances. So, but anyway, yeah, I mean, it's, again, I, I think you'll enjoy it. And and if anything, out of all of his books, I think that one, especially for you and I, I think is most applicable. Because, yeah, I mean, his sense of humor, how he attacked subjects, it, it's it's something I think you and I can definitely relate to and think, oh, yeah, finally, somebody else, you know. So, mm-hmm. um uh contrarianism it's it's a double-edged sword because while you can talk about it all day and feel morally superior after having said so um it really does drain you i think i'm gonna go take a shower so if there's any last remarks (laughs) i start i started this whole discussion so well i didn't start it i just gave a half-assed intro and i called it a day uh any closing remarks he he actually did do some stand up in the '90s, which is actually pretty funny. Mm. I'll, I'll just, I guess I'll I'll leave it on this very note. How uh, he was a big fan of long jokes. Um, you know, there, there's these two vegetables. You know, they they're, they're kind of like two heads of cabbage. You know, and uh, you know they meet up with each other and they start hooking up. They they go on dates, what have you. Uh, time goes by, they develop a relationship, they start to love each other. Uh, next thing you know, they're getting married. And, you know, they get married, obviously, a kid comes forward, uh, or a kid comes from the marriage, and at some point, the kid is playing out in the front yard. The kid, Cabbage, is playing out in the front yard. Uh, and hopefully I'm not confusing this with onions, because I want to say he was talking about onions, but I'll stick with cabbage. And, uh... The uh, child cabbage is playing out in the front yard until all of a sudden the kid cabbage is wanders out into the street and is struck and run over by a car. And so the two heads of cabbage are like, oh, no, our, our, our child. Uh. And so they take their child to the hospital and they're in the waiting room and they're thinking, oh, no, is he going to be OK? I hope he's going to be OK. The doctor comes out. Doctor, doctor, is our is our dear child going to be OK? And the doctor comes out and says, well, the good news is your child is going to be okay, but he's going to be a vegetable for the rest of his life. I'm ending the call. (laughs) (laughs) Good night. Good night, everybody. You've been listening to Mars on Life. Look up our show on Instagram and Twitter by searching at Mars on Life show and give us a follow. Tune in to the latest episodes and bonus content from our show wherever podcasts are found, including Anchor, 
Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Also, don't forget to head on over to the official Mars on Life YouTube channel to like and subscribe our work. This show's artwork, Happy Mars, is by Zachary Urbrick, while our intro and outro is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. Once again, I am Ryan Mancini, and my co-host, as always, is Sebastian Shug. If you keep going, you'll make it to Mars. Mars.